This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the... Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel, coming to you today from Sapporo in Japan. Today, we'll be talking to Andrew Kipnis, Professor in Anthropology at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, about his book, From Village to City, Social Transformation in a Chinese County Seat, which was published in 2016 by University of California Press. The story of China's economic growth and urbanization over the past 30 years is in many regards one of the most dramatic and significant of modern times in East Asia as in the world at large. But whilst one hears a lot about the headline-grabbing metropolises of Shanghai or Beijing and about the countryside which people have left for the cities, the urbanizing experience of China's many thousands of in-between locales is not so often discussed. Andrew Kipnis's From Village to City is a vital addition to our understanding of what has been happening in these sorts of places, which are arguably the most representative of China's headlong rush to urban modernity. Presented to us by an anthropologist with three decades of longitudinal perspective from a single location, the county-level town of Zoping in Shandong province, the book at once serves as a richly ethnographic account of life there since the late 1980s, and as a novel theoretical argument for how we might understand the idea of modernization uh, and also urbanization in general. Describing and analyzing the entangled social transformations seen through the lens of family life, migration, and even styles of inhabiting the world, the book, which is also richly supplemented by the author's photographs, refuses to oversimplify what is undeniably a compound and multifaceted process. Yet despite dealing with a great many entangled aspects of social transformation, From Village to City is also a really absorbing read from start to finish, lucidly telling a story which is at turns astonishing, entertaining, and, as one would expect from someone with as long-standing a connection to a single place as Kipnis has, deeply personal. So to uh, hear more about all of this uh, and uh, discuss the book, I'd like to say, Andrew Kipnis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Ed. Great. Well, uh, the book was uh, a fantastic read, as I mentioned. Um, but before we get into it, perhaps you could tell us a bit about yourself and your academic background, how you came to focus on uh, China in general, and I guess Zolping, uh, your longstanding field site in particular. Um, okay, yes. Yeah, so when I was uh, started out as a graduate student, um, I just applied to a program in anthropology, and it's in the American system, so you don't really have to have a preconceived field project uh, to apply for a, a, a PhD program because you spend the first few years doing your coursework. Um, but almost as soon as I got there, um, my supervisors told me I should pick a place in the world where I wanted to do research. And I was, at that time, I was sort of a, uh, I guess, an 
I don't know. I don't know if I want to say typical, but I was like many other uh, graduate students. I was fairly radical in my politics, and I was very interested in Maoism. And I was sure that all the terrible things people were saying about Maoism couldn't be true. Um, so I really kind of wanted to go to China, and I just picked China. Um, in some ways out of the blue. I didn't really have a lot of background in China studies. I had no Chinese language at that point, And I started studying Chinese from my first year of graduate school. Um, then fortunately for me, um, Judith Farquhar, who is, uh, I think most anthropologists of China would have heard of her. She's a very well-established um, uh, uh, researcher from the University of Chicago now. But she, she came to... Our, my school, I was at the University of North Carolina in my third or fourth year. Um, and there was really no China anthropologist at our university before that point. So uh, it was really great to have her. And she kind of took me under her wing. Um, and then I went to China to uh, continue working on my Chinese. I went to Nanjing University. Um, and uh, while I was at Nanjing University, she got invited to go to Zoping County as um, part of this large research team uh, that was, there was a large project of American researchers doing field work in Zoping County. Zoping County was sort of negotiated as a field site between what was then called the Committee for Scholarly Research uh, on the People's Republic of China, which was an American organization, and the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. And she was selected as part of that team. So after a year of language study in Nanjing, I was able to go to Zoping first as her field assistant um, the summer after, I think that was the summer of 1988. Um, so that's the first time I went to Zoping. And from there, I was just, I was able to develop my own doctoral project. And then I just kept going back ever since then. Um, and so that's how I got introduced to Zoping. That's, uh, that's fascinating. And, and just to jump back a little bit, uh, you say that, you know, the, 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 your political uh, views and, 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 and kind of um, positions at that stage of your graduate career informed your interest in China and kind of gave that, uh, gave that impetus into to initially going there. Um, where had that come from in your, in your life? I mean, I know it's obviously common that such interests are, 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 are common uh, student interests, but uh, had Maoism particularly arrived in your life in some distinct way? Uh, perhaps, I wouldn't say in a very distinct way. Um, it was just something I had always, uh, I had heard about in courses as an uh, undergraduate. And, um, you know, of course, we'd, I'd heard about Marx and Marxism and, and done a little bit of reading about that. And so it was just something I was interested in, um, in sort of, uh, not, I wouldn't say it was the center of my interest at that point in my life, but it was just something that was there. Right, right, right. Yeah, and I suppose I mean these these kind of small uh, triggers can end up uh, generating uh, in, entire careers, even if they even if they start out as non central uh, non central interests. Um, but that's great. Well, uh, perhaps we can move on then. Uh, I mean, you spent then the subsequent few years returning to Zolping relatively regularly. Um, perhaps you could say uh, something about how this project or the series of projects that you conducted in the, uh, in, in the county of Zolping in Shandong, uh, how they evolved and ultimately how 
that led you to write the book that we're discussing today from village to city um okay so my doctoral research back in the late 1980s to the early 1990s was focused on a village in zoping county and i studied i guess sort of kind of classical anthropological themes especially gift giving um and weddings and funerals and this sort of thing um and I was also interested very much in the social history of the village. So it's kind of the intersection of these uh, uh, kind of anthropological themes with with larger uh, uh, political movements. Um, but then after I finished my dissertation, um, you know, I suppose like many uh, young academics, it was hard for me to start my career. Um, and I wasn't able to go back to Zoping as often as I would like. So I would say in some ways during the night, I think I went back in 1992. Um, and then there was a three-year hiatus and I went back in 1995. Um during the summer for a visit. And at that point, I was started to get interested uh, in a church uh, that was at the center of the county seat. Um, and so I did a little bit of research about that, but that turned out to be politically um, not uh, uh, very... I, not not possible to do in an ethical way because I, I I discovered basically that the the public security bureau was was debriefing everybody I interviewed so I felt like I you know anytime I talked to somebody I could be putting them at risk so I I, I called off that project and I was trying to think about what project I wanted to do next and I came up with education in part because I realized that people wanted me to teach English there and that would give me some sort of access to schools. Um, so beginning in about 1999, I started uh, focusing on the education system there and how it was developing um, and changing. And I would go to schools both inside the county seat, but also schools that were in villages or in townships um, that were relatively remote. Um, and I spent most of the uh, first decade of the uh, the noughties, um, I spent most of the noughties doing my education um, project. Um, mm-hmm. But that was also the time that the county seat seat really started urbanizing quickly, and you know it was just changing and growing so rapidly. Um, I became very interested in this urbanization, and I just decided after I finished my uh, education book, I would immediately turn to the problem of how Zoping was uh, urbanizing. And also these two things to me were kind of linked, you know, under the broad sense of of, of modernization. So, you know, you, you have a growth of a school system and children start spending more and more years in school. So I think when I first went to Zoping, it was very common for people to stop school after primary school. But by, so, you know, only six years of education. Um, but over the years that I went there, that expanded into uh, junior middle school. So almost everybody would finish junior middle school and it became a compulsory education to go through nine years. And then everybody started to going to three years of kindergarten before you even started school. So that brought it up to 12 and everybody started going to senior middle school. So that built it up brought it up to 15 and, you know, a large proportion of the people even started going to university. So um, uh, I saw this sort of 
huge expansion of the education system alongside of the urbanization of the county seat. Uh, so to me, they were always somewhat related um, projects. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so I think I, for- I, I formally started working on urbanization in about 2008, but I had been observing it for quite a while before that. Right, right, right. And one of the products of, of very recent developments uh, that, that uh, I guess is observable in, in all parts of China and, and is one of the most astonishing dimensions of this modernization is uh, infrastructure and, and communicant, uh, communicative uh, uh, for technologies which are available to people. Um, I think imagining uh, this kind of long-term uh, repeat visit fieldwork occurring in the 80s and 90s uh, to people uh, such perhaps as me, who have done fieldwork in China more recently, it's quite uh, interesting to imagine how one would stay in touch with a place that one, as you say, would not necessarily visit for, for three years. Um, how did you, and, and did you indeed, sustain contact with some of the same people from the 80s through the 90s and then continuing up to the 2000s? And, and, and how, was that, how was that contact sustained? Uh, yeah, well, in some ways, not really so uh in the 19 you know the the people who i knew in the 1980s from the village um i stayed in touch with them um probably through the 1990s but it was very sporadic contact sometimes i would write letters so the old-fashioned mail by post um but it was really you know every time i would go there it would be renewed and also they some people from the county uh especially certain officials would uh come out of the county to visit uh places in the united states or australia and i i hosted them on several occasions as well um i see when the by the time we got to around 2000 and I was doing my education project, uh, then email became possible and I was getting slightly more contact with people and I would talk to the same and every time I would go back to the county, I would always visit the same people. So I would uh, make a point of, of uh, revisiting the same people again and again and again. So it was, in some ways, it was mostly renewed by seeing them again each time I went there. So I would have to look them up and, you know, I might bring a gift and say hello and that sort of right, thing. right, right. Yeah, but I suppose yeah, the way that you've kept in contact with people or, or continue to correspond with people has, has in some ways reflected the, uh, the some dimensions of of the arrival of, of modernity in that location, um, as you as you describe it in the book. Um, and just one final, actually, curious uh, curiosity I have about the process of writing this book, uh, dealing with material from the, uh, the 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 long durée of your uh, repeat visits to this location. Um, were you dealing when writing this particular book with with notes that you'd made all the way back in the original eighties and nineties visits, and what what kind of form were these in by uh, by the mid two thousand and tens that that meant that you could deal with them and, and write um, write this book? I mean, we had, had had you digitized your kind of ethnographic archive, and uh, or, or how how had you uh, kind of preserved those notes and so on? 
That's a good question. So when I did my original field work in the late 1980s, there were word processors back then. And I actually had uh, every night I would type up my uh, field notes. Um, I had a, a, a laptop computer and uh, there was a program called Notebook, which was actually sort of a kind of a field note taking um uh, program. Uh, in the end, I did not find notebook uh, any more useful than, say, just doing it in a word processing program would have been. So the idea behind notebook was that you could, you know, you could index all your notes. So let's say you, you know, say uh, uh, today I talked to about weddings. Uh, to an older woman. And so then if I was, you know, I wanted to search through it, um, uh, you know, a decade later, I could say, you know, every time that, uh, uh, you know, there was an instance of me talking to an older woman about weddings, bring that up. And it could do that. But that wasn't so useful to me, because what I find what I do is I just read the whole, you know, I probably have generated about 200 pages of notes from my dissertation period. And I would just read them. You know, when I wanted to start writing again, I would just spend a day reading the whole thing from cover to cover. And, uh, and so I would, and then, you know, because my categories and what I'm interested in is always changing. So mm. there's no way I could have used the categories I was using from the 1980s. And plus I wanted to read it all again anyway, just to refamiliarize myself. Um, on some of my shorter trips, after my dissertation, I only went there for a week or so. I sometimes just kept handwritten notebooks, but again, I kept them all and I would read them uh, from cover to cover when I was uh, preparing to write. Um, and then, and since then, you know, in my education project and in the um, uh, project, this specific project, I would always do my field notes and just. I would do them in Word. So I had various Word files. I had a diary file. I had interview files. And and again, I just found the best thing is I just needed to reread everything, um, mm. you know, if I, before I started writing a chapter and I would take notes, you know, oh, be sure to use that thing you have on page 22 of your notes and, you know, use the quote from that woman and use that. And, but you know, it would kind of all be in my head while I was writing after I reread everything anyway. Mm, mm, mm. Well, that's really interesting. I think it's 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 uh, just uh, having re reading the book, it's intriguing to uh, imagine the writing process as itself uh, an engagement with some of the, the kind of variant uh, material aspects of, uh, of what having a, uh, a, an archive of notes and so on from that length of time. And I also have a collection of written sources, um, you know, not my own notes, but, you know, the statistical yearbooks from the county and the uh, uh, various maps of the county that I collected over the years and newspaper articles that I collected over year, the years and all these sorts of um, things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, well, it's, uh, it's, it's great how that all kind of does come together in the book itself. So I think uh, having, having discussed something of the background of how it all came together, we, sh we should jump in uh, to the content of the book itself. Um, it's divided into two parts, which uh, I think play off one another really well. Um, the first, Transformations, uh, as you had it, is concerned with 
a kind of macro level look at uh, the dynamics of, of change, social transformation uh, and, and urbanization in Zolping since the 80s. And then the second uh you move on to around halfway through the book, Transformers Transformed, uh, zooms in a little more to examine the uh, somewhat more intimate sides, uh, we could say, of lives uh, of the of various different categories of doping resident. Um, but you introduce the whole thing, set the whole thing up before uh, part one even begins with a with an introduction entitled Recombinant Urbanization. So perhaps uh, you could uh, begin by uh, elaborating or explaining a little more uh, what urbanization uh, means, I, I suppose, to, to you and, and in the doping context, how that relates to modernization, and then how you uh, approach both of these ideas through the notion of recombination that you uh, foreground. Okay, thanks for that question. I, I suppose that um, part of my feeling when I started writing the book was that the notions of modernization um, and development had been so criticized in anthropology that it had become almost impossible to have any language uh, to discuss the transformations um, that were going on really throughout China um, in a place that had so rapidly urbanized and so rapidly improved its infrastructure and had so such a rapid increase in the standard of living. I suppose similar things happened in Korea and in Japan a, a few decades earlier. Um, so I was just, I, I, I felt that to engage with what was happening in China, um, I really had to uh, deal with modernization literature in some way. I couldn't just totally dismiss it or totally remove it from my field of vision. And I also found that in thinking about what was going on in Zoping, it was really some of these very classical literature that sort of really spoke to me. So, you know, things like the rise of an advertising uh, industry and things like, um, you know, transformations in kinship. Um, and I really tried to reread some of the, um, I guess you could say, the classics um, discussions that were really concerned with modernization in Europe. Um, and then I was trying to think, well, how can I take into account, um, you know, so many of these critiques of modernization without totally abandoning the idea of social transformation? So to me, the word transformation, right, involves changes in many aspects of something that are somehow interrelated, right? So if you say that there's just social change, there's always social change. Everywhere is always undergoing social change. Uh, modernization theory, I think, proposed this idea that all societies go under the same type of transformation when they modernize. And all these things happen together at once, right? You get industrialization, urbanization, you get the establishment of a school system, you get a, uh, a, um, oh, a, what's the word, a demographic transition, right? So, you know, people start having less children, but they live longer, um, 
And somehow uh, all of these things, you get the nuclearization of the family, right? And somehow all these things are interrelated. Um, and that sort of, you know, very simplified portrait was quite justly uh, criticized for many reasons. Um, and it seemed to erase the individual history of uh, various places. So I was really looking for a compromise, um, some way to suggest that changes in different aspects of social life are somehow interrelated, right? So there is something like a transformation going on. It's not just random social change, but on the other hand, that the specificity of the place and its local history and its local culture still matter. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that's a fairly simple notion in some ways. Um, and it's really what the word transformation, in a sense, entails. Um, so uh, transformation means interrelated changes, but it means that somehow something that was originally there um, is still there in a recombined fashion. Mm -hmm. Right. So transformation is not a replacement. It's not, you know, you have industrial society replacing um, agricultural society. Rather, transformation means something about the bits and pieces of an agricultural society change in multiple ways that are interrelated to become a new formation. But because the bits and pieces came from the old society, um, there's still some continuity there. Uh, and you have to understand uh, both the continuity and the change at the same time uh, to portray a transformation. So that's kind of what I was trying to get at with the idea of recombinant, which comes from recombinant genetics. Mm. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, so the recombination is the, is the, 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 the compound changing of all of these uh, different aspects uh, of 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 old old life and 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 new uh, ways of doing things as, as, as you see them I, 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 I suppose that's a um, a really kind of compelling way it is really a compelling way to look at it um, especially in a city which uh, and this is one of many facts and figures that just leaps out of you from from the his, recent history of Dolping uh, that's expanded from a population of uh, 30,000 to 300,000 over the last 30 years I mean it's uh, it's quite um, difficult to imagine how would, how one would approach this at all and I think a, a really um, as I say compelling approach to it to uh, to to see it in 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 terms of these recombinant uh, processes um but one thing i also wanted to ask uh was about how development and modernization are seen in the field site itself in in china at least it's something that's very striking uh, from an anthropology background that one does as you say read an awful lot of literature that problematizes the idea of development and and modernization and and challenges all of these early classical theories um but then going to china both uh, the, on the official level, the people who are planning all of this, and I think a lot of ordinary people see the idea of modern modernity and modernization and development as completely unproblematic. You know, they, they, these are perceived as being linear processes, changes that are radical and absolute. Um, how, how did you bring in the perspective of, um, of, of, of people on the ground into your sort of theoretical framing of the, of the whole book? That's an interesting question and perhaps something that I didn't do 
well enough. I think that, you know, people didn't speak to me a lot uh, about modernization. That wasn't sort of a a word that rolled off of people's tongues. I, I would say it was more implicit um, in their anxieties, um, which is to say that they saw a rapid transformation in standards of living. Um, and so there was a real palpable feeling that if you don't keep up, you'll be left behind, right? And so I think this is something that is perhaps felt in many, many societies that experience um rapid economic development. I remember people talking about Korea this way as well. I'm sure people used to talk about Japan or Taiwan. Um, so, so this kind of sense of a, a fear um, of being left behind, a appreciation of new technologies. Um, I, I think these are sort of the kind of uh, implicit ways in which, um, you know, ordinary people uh, experience uh, this sort of rapid sort of uh, social change, and um, uh, and and also, yes, as you say, seem to uh, uh, favor or to accept modernization as unproblematic. Um, yeah, and I think that there's also this sort of Darwinian sense of, you know, right, some places are going to be left behind, and those places somehow, they don't really deserve pity. They're sort of, you know, they haven't kept up, right? And we don't want to be like that. Right, right. Uh, so that's that's sort of perhaps a more unfortunate aspect of it. But I, I do feel that uh, there was a bit of that. Mm. Well, we perhaps now can jump into some of the specifics of what those transformations are, and you sort of parse them along uh, four different axes, I suppose, uh, in, in, in part one, uh, planning, production, consumption, and then uh, what you term phantasmagoria, the kind of uh, transformation of public space and, 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 and uh, experience of, of, of public space by uh, resulting residents. Um, all of these are analysed through this lens of recombination. Um, so the planning section which begins part one here uh, gives us a really good feel for just the the the, the physical uh, expansion of the town the new areas that have been built um could you discuss a little bit about the the planning process uh, to what extent things were planned uh, to what extent things were catching up with transformations that were happening in a more organic way and and how the city as a thing on the map uh, has has changed uh, over the last 30 years yeah, that's that, those are good questions. I think that uh, it, you know, the, the the city was, I would say, the major transformation was quite planned. Um, so you know, they decided we're going to have a development zone, we're going to have a new city. Uh, they laid it out very much on a grid, um, and you know, you can physically see the grid you know, on any map and you feel the grid when you walk the streets. Um, uh, having said that, though, of course, there were also very many. Um, there's both a historical aspect to this and or, an organic aspect to this, which is not planned. So the historical aspect to this is that even before its rapid expansion, there were 
plant. And some of the precedents that were set in that early historical period about how to do a plan, about what the rules were of villages land on the outskirts of the city and how you were going to compensate the villagers for taking over their land, what was the process of getting that land, um, what was the process of laying out new infrastructure. Many precedents were set in sort of the earlier historical periods that are then somehow reproduced in the new plans. Um, but then there are also, as you say, many things that don't come into the plan. So there are many uh, villages, for example, on the outskirts of the city um, that have opportunities to develop rental housing markets um, uh, for migrant laborers. And then they built all sorts of kind of uh, uh, makeshift housing with poor sanitation. Um, that's certainly not part of the plan, but it happens, right? And then there's also uh, contention among planners. So even some of the big developers, I mean, I think it's perhaps true. And uh, many people in China say that, oh, the big developers and uh, the uh, local governments all collude with one another. Um, and perhaps there is some collusion, but I think there's also a bit of tension. And so sometimes developers want to build buildings in a certain way, and that's not what uh, the planning bureau originally had in mind. And, and you know, we heard, I heard some bit about those sorts of tensions, and then there's negotiations. Um, so in this sense, it's not, you know, just uh, the government imagines a plan and and it turns out exactly like that. There's definitely um, give and take and organic processes that are intertwined uh, with the uh, planning processes from above. Mm. And, uh, and and so, uh, as you describe it, the city ends up with these three uh, sort of distinct, but actually not completely exclusive uh, zones, if you like, an old town, a new town, and a development zone, which you say the planners themselves will uh, the, the, the city officials will describe as having specific functions and and, and quite demarcated uh, roles within the, the overall uh, city kind of uh, the, the overall life of the city. Um, of course, as you also mentioned, that is not uh, those those rules don't actually apply across the board. And even if there are general trends where certain functions or certain activities are more concentrated, there's a great deal of of mixing between them. Um, but one of uh, Dolping's seemingly key. Uh, uh, sort of uh, a key pillar of its existence uh, for for all of the period you're discussing is is the production side, which is uh, the next chapter after the planning one, um, and specifically one enormous. I, I mean, again, this is another thing that leaps out. Uh, this Weitao Group, mm. uh, which you say went from being a local cloth producing town and village enterprise in Zolping, uh back uh, in the uh, early reform period, to being the largest cloth producer in the world. Um, could you say something about the role of this uh, Wei Chao in Zolping and, and how looking at uh, tr- recombinant production, as, as, as you term it, uh, helps us understand this dimension of the town's uh, transformations? Uh, yeah, sure. So, I mean, in some ways, you know, Wei Chao is, is an organic development. And what I mean by that is, you know, in the 1980s, this area, one of the main crops was cotton. And that means uh, the very first attempts to industrialize uh, usually were the first industries you get out of cotton. So the first thing you do with cotton is you have to... Um, turn the strands of cotton uh, into thread. 
Um, and so that's called cotton ginning. And then a bi, you know, if you look at, if you've seen cotton in the field, right, it comes, it, it grows in these sort of seed pods, which are called cotton balls. And inside the cotton balls, these are kind of like hard uh, cased things. Uh, there are both cotton seeds and these little threads um, of, of thread-like thing that you can spin into cotton thread. Um, and so then from the seeds, you can make uh, a cotton seed oil. So that's sort of the very most basic uh, industry that uh, underlines uh, all sort of uh, cotton production is, is cotton ginning, which is essentially spinning the um, threads into spinning the little strands into thread and then pressing cotton, separating the seeds from the strands and then pressing the seeds into cotton seed oil and spinning the uh, strands into thread. So that's the very most basic industry. And when you started getting uh, the you know if you know about the history of industrialization in China during the 1980s, uh, after the Maoist period, uh, there it was allowed there was greater leeway given to villages and townships to develop their own industries, um, and this was usually one of the first things they would try to do in any cotton growing area is you know develop your own village cotton ginning and uh, cotton seed oil factory and so in the 1980s there were probably hundreds and hundreds of such small scale factories across Zoping County and you know like every third village would have one um, and uh, this particular one was actually being run by the Supply and Marketing Cooperative, um, which was sort of a, a, a township branch at that point of, of the county government. Um, so in this sense, it was organic. And it was perhaps also to be expected that in such a situation, all these small little factories would be competing with one another and there would be winners and losers. And so Wei Chao is basically the big winner, right? So it outcompeted all the other hundreds of small uh, factories. And as it outcompeted them, it would swallow them up. So when one of those other small factories went bankrupt, very often Wei Chao would buy their equipment uh, and hire their workers. So, um, I, you know, I guess it was a phase of... Uh, consolidation of the industry. But in some ways, I guess what I'm trying to say is it's not just an accident that there got to be a Wei Chiao, right? It has to do um, with the history of the county and what used to be growing there. And then the uh, kind of competition of all these small factories. Uh, and then a winner emerges and becomes a huge conglomerate. And I actually think that such a dynamic has happened in many small cities um, in China. Yeah, I think, I think that's why, in many ways, this uh, story, uh, the entire story throughout the book is so valuable because uh, the, this kind of a location is much more representative than some of these uh, larger, more, um, as I said, uh, more headline-grabbing locations uh, in terms of reflecting on, on the broad processes of uh, what's happened in China in, in recent decades. Um, but it's also, uh, yeah, as, as you say, a great uh, instance of this 
Darwinian, as you as you termed it earlier, um, competition and winners and losers, um, to see how Wei Chao has emerged as something very important and influential over the whole city, but has emerged from very local roots and, and something that was profoundly embedded there. This this and these are these recombin- recombining recombinant processes that you bring out that say you know modernity doesn't come from nowhere. It doesn't just sort of swoop in. Um, it always uh, brings with it uh, layers of, 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 of foregoing uh, ways of ways of being. Um, mm. Now. Uh, We'll move on perhaps to the to the latter two uh, chapters in this first transformation section, which could deal with uh, consumption uh, and, as I said, uh, phantasmagoria, as you put it, um, which we can look look at perhaps together uh, because they um, seem to speak of a set of experiences of uh, for, for ordinary residents who we'll move on to in the second part of the book. Um, how have consumption and, and, and then uh, experiences of, of public space uh, changed alongside these kind of more... Uh, planning and, and production uh, based changes. Oh, yeah, so that's that's very interesting. So consumption all over China, you know, there's been a lot written about consumption. Obviously, as China gets wealthier, people have more money to spend, and then you get all these sort of um, uh, secondary industries growing up everywhere. Um, so, you know, just things, people start consuming motorbikes and cars, and they start buying nicer apartments, and uh, uh, more people go out to restaurants. Um there's a lot of spending on educational things for children, um, as well as almost, you know, healthcare for children. I remember the first time I started seeing it, it seemed to happen all at once. And all of a sudden, I, you know, because I was going to the schools, and all of a sudden, a fair number of the kids had braces on their teeth. And I had never seen a kid with braces on their teeth. Um hmm. And then they all of a sudden, you know, quite a few had them. And so, you know, this was the establishment of obviously the orthodontic industry in, uh, in Zoping. Um, and so there are many, you know, kind of uh, small niches of consumption that uh, grow. Um, public space is also interesting because as you get to be a, uh, a larger city, um, and there are more and more people who you don't recognize. So it's not a small town where everybody knows each other anymore. Um, and then there are also spaces where people can mingle. And so some of these were planned, you know, places like parks and plazas, but then there are places like shopping malls. I suppose there were always outdoor markets um, and going to the market used to be, uh, you know, they, you know, if you go way back to the work of William, William Skinner, he, he talked about the periodic markets, and there were periodic markets uh, in in various places in Zoping. Um, but uh, shopping malls then also become places that are very uh, crowded and lots of people are going to. Um, you get uh, uh, certain types of fast food restaurants where people just sit next to one another. Um, you get a lot of sort of street life where there are uh, beggars on the street, where there are uh, uh, stores doing promotion on the street with loud music. And, you know, they might even have a a stage for performers. Um, um, And you get all these sort of, uh, uh, I guess you could call them public spectacles. Um, And so I, 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 
I felt that was a very uh, interesting change from uh, the past. And it also felt, you know, people talk about the idea in China a lot of, of uh, Runau or, or, or what is it, heat and noise, right? So sort of very hot sociality where you have a lot of people together. Um, but uh, many time, many places in Zoping felt like that. So, you know, certain places you could go on Friday or Saturday night and there would just be, you know, the streets were packed with people. Uh, everybody's milling around. There's music blaring out of all these stores. There's all sorts of things going on at once. Um, and you, you get a bit of that kind of feel just, just walking uh, in the streets. Yeah, I, I think that section that, that both those sections do with the consumption and, and the and the sort of public space dimension are um, incredibly pertinent and, and and I think very will be very redolent to anyone who's who's spent any amount of time in China that the the, the now is uh, is palpable uh, really wherever you go and uh, and and obviously I think uh, such an important dimension to how uh, urbanization has, has has affected the lives of people because public culture and the way that people engage one another talk to one another in public spaces is uh in comparison in some cases to other east asian locations too a lot more sort of uh free and easy i would say a lot more relaxed in in uh, in chinese cities than than uh, one might experience elsewhere um but uh, we'll move on perhaps now to to part two um transformers transformed um and uh, you, you again break things down uh, into several categories of, of Zolping residents, which um, you point out are not sort of meant to be uh, mutually exclusive uh, d- divisions of, of different kinds of people, but which broadly speak to some of the uh, key experiences that people have had amidst amidst the changes uh, outlined in part one. Um, so the first uh, two uh, chapters of part two deal with migrants, both those coming from nearby rural areas in the immediate uh, vicinity of the county town and then also those who come from far away. Um, you bring out uh, in particular uh, one, I guess, classical anthropological concern uh, in, in relation to these, namely kinship and uh, and, and experiences of family connection. So um, perhaps uh, you, you could say something about the way that looking at how kinship patterns uh, might change or, or indeed do not change um, help us see uh, the experience of new Zoping residents um, in, in, in terms of recombination and producing older ways and also experiencing the new. Uh, yeah, no, so that was very interesting to me. I felt that the nearby residents, um, they maintain connections to their villages. And uh, in Zoping, as in many parts of China, the sort of village uh, culture is very... Uh, I guess the word would be vera local or patra local. So there's a very much a sense that the woman moves to the man's house um, and that the the land is in the uh, uh, man's family. Um, and uh, so this this has uh, this kind of culture then uh, still in some ways infuses the life of local factory workers because the men very often would go back home to their own villages uh, and do some farming work on the weekends, for example. But the women uh, did not usually return to their own villages um, to do farming work on the weekends. They would tend to actually work more shifts in the factory. So you had uh, a situation where women were tending to work more hours outside, quote, outside the home. Uh, than the men were uh, among this particular group, uh, perhaps 
in relation to this sort of recombination of of uh, vera local patterns of kinship. Um, you also had a pattern where uh, very often the man's uh, parents um, would come and help with child care, uh, particularly the uh, 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 man's mother uh, might come and live with uh, uh, a nearby migrant couple in their apartment in the city to help take care of the children so that the husband and wife uh, could spend more time working in the factory and earn more money. Um, so, you know, I guess broadly speaking, one thing I really felt is that uh, the relationships between uh, a couple and the husband's parents uh, and the wife's parents were not exactly the same. So it is not really a bilateral situation. Um, there mm. was there was some difference there. Uh, but then with the people who came from far away, they really didn't have the same sort of connection uh, back to their hometowns and home villages. And even in these days of WeChat or uh, uh, QQ, where it's, you know, you can have communication back and forth, uh, the, the physical distance still matters a lot. And especially for practical issues like child care, um, uh, I, I guess child care being the number one issue, um, you know, the, the, the families from far away were really quite nucleated, so they did not bring their parents with them. Uh, I don't think I met one case of a migrant family from far away in which the parents of the sort of middle-aged workers uh, were also living with them. So would they be experiencing, uh, in some regards, a different uh, incarnation of of what urbanization or modernization represents from those coming from closer closer to hand. Yeah, so I think that you know, in some ways, they more closely fit sort of these classical models of transformation of kinship under modernization, where you see, you know, I think uh, Yan Yunqiang. I'm sure many people would be familiar with his work. He emphasized the, you know, the sort of the rise of conjugality and the nuclearization of families. Um, I would say that that was most evident uh, for these migrants from distant areas because, you know, it was basically just a husband, wife, and children unit that was uh, coming to Zoping. Mm. And, um, yeah, they were very, in some ways, very nuclear families. Yeah, and I think I think that really helps us to break down the, the, the complex, uh, uh, well, the complexities of modernization or, or of urbanization as a process, because clearly, as you say, uh, communicative technologies are uh, helpful in reducing some sense of some some kinds of distance or some sense of of being cut off, but they're not sufficient to uh, to really uh, to uh, negate the effects of having travelled for often uh, hundreds or even thousands of, of, of kilometres across China, as some of these uh, migrants that you profile uh, have done. And I should say that actually these. Uh, stories and, and, and these experiences come through in a really rich array of, uh, of, of uh, case studies 
presented from your work uh, going back uh, over the years. And, and I think this is this, it's a tremendous uh, ethnographic trove of, of, of material there um, for, for really understanding uh, a great deal more about, about what uh, Zolping residents and, and, and I think um, uh, those who ex- experienced urbanization in China have, have gone through. Um, one of the most interesting groups uh, that you deal with, at least to me, and, and it was a group I wasn't so aware of, uh, of, of the, the nuances of, are these villages in the city. Uh, so these are the mm-hmm. residents of the villages which have been, I guess, consumed by uh, your uh, by, by the expansion of Zolping. Um, these are a pretty fascinating and unique cohort of people who've, I think, approached urbanization in really interesting ways. Could you just say a little more about who they are and, 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 and what kind of uh, reactions they've had or, 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 or tactics they've deployed in the face of Zolping's urbanization? Yeah, this is a a really a major issue throughout China. Um, I think in some ways, some people think it's, you know, sort of, uh, how can I say, it's, it's one of the issues most likely to uh, uh, result in conflict is when you confiscate, if you're expanding the city's borders and you confiscate the land from villagers, how are these uh, villagers going to be recompensated and, you know, where are they going to end up living? And there's been quite a lot of local variation in how this has happened. And so, you know, one of the really interesting things for me is I, I had a lot of colleagues who were doing research in the Pearl River Delta. And in the Pearl River Delta, um, the many villages in the city have become quite wealthy. Um, so there's almost... Uh, they become a rentier class in a sense. So you have, how, how can I describe it in the Pearl River Delta? I think the uh, 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 typical dynamic would be that a certain um, village would give up its land for urbanization, um, but it would be, you know, they would give up most of their land, but they would be allowed to keep a certain portion, maybe five or 10%. And because this land is now urbanized and there's a huge demand for housing and factory space and so on, this five to 10% of land that they're allowed to keep as a village collective becomes incredibly valuable. And then the village as a whole uh, can become uh, relatively are not just relatively quite well off so they can you know people have uh income from you know they have a share in in apartment buildings that they're renting out um and they become really sort of a separated class um in other parts of china however though there are all sorts of stories of of people getting ripped off essentially and getting not you know, hardly any compensation. Uh, they end up impoverished. Um, and there's, you know, a lot of potential for protest. Um, sometimes their protests are violently squashed. So there's a, you know, there's a huge variation in sort of the uh, types of situations that people who we could call villagers in the city end up in in China. And I guess in Zoping, it was kind of, uh, I, I could say, an intermediary case. Um, but uh, most villagers in the city did end up uh, not extremely wealthy, but fairly well off. So slightly better off than uh, uh, people who were not villagers in the city because of the levels of compensation uh, that they received. 
Um, and there was also variation within Zoping as some villages uh, got slightly better deals than others. Um, and some villages just happened to have, you know, they retained a piece of land that became very, very valuable and which they managed very, very well. And so the, the village as a collective received a fairly large income. So this mm-hmm. is you know, a dynamic that's going on across China, but not always in the same way um, in every place. And then there's also this, a lot of people do research on the extent to which uh, villagers in the city maintain their village identity um, after they become um, sort of urban residents in the city. And some of them sort of maintained some sort of village structure, you know, so if you have a village real estate investment uh, as a result um, of this uh, uh, urbanization process, then you're going to have to have a village structure, right? You're going to have to have rules about who is in the village and who's not in the village, who receives benefits from uh, this uh, real estate investment and who cannot receive benefits. Uh, and that in itself uh, is often enough to maintain a village identity. Mm-hmm. Um, in places without such sort of collective income, uh, you know, in some places in uh, uh, China, they will try to, for example, merge several villages together into a single apartment complex so that the new apartment complex does not simply reproduce the identity of the old village. Um, so, you know, that's another sort of dynamic there. But the, I think there are uh, considerable tensions around the extent to which uh, village identity should be reproduced um, in the urbanization process. And generally speaking, you know, powers above do not want to reproduce these identities. They want everybody just to become, you know, citizens of, of the new city. Uh, but very often villagers manage to have certain ways of reproducing a village identity uh, even after urbanization. Mm, yeah, that's. Uh, I mean, I, as I say, it's a really, really fascinating uh, uh, insight into again some of the real uh, ground level nuances. Um, we perhaps won't dive into to too much detail about the last two groups of people you discussed: the the middle classes and then also uh, youth uh, in the city. Um, but uh, suffice to point out for uh, listeners who are undoubtedly going to rush out and buy the book after this um, that there's a really excellent uh, uh, outline there of, of some more detail uh, in in terms of the the consumption choices and how middle class or class identity in general operates uh, in in Zoping. and then also uh, great uh, engagement with uh, with yeah some of the younger population uh, hanging out at the the roller skating rink and uh, and various other new locations that uh, that are there for youth um, but perhaps uh, we'll just have a final question on the book and, and the conclusion um, I, I guess uh, to return to the broader themes that we started with, I mean, um, how might the example of Zoping inform our analysis and understandings of of urbanisation, uh, perhaps even beyond China? Do you, do you feel that that there is that there is scope there for uh, interpreting um, urbanisation and modernisation uh, in new ways as a result of of what we can draw from uh, a place like Zoping? And then, as a sub question, also actually, what what happened to uh, the original? village, the, the field site that you were conducting field work in in the late 80s? Was that was that swallowed up to become one of these urban villages? 
Um, okay, uh, I'll, I'll deal with the second question first because it's quite easy, and the answer is no, it was not swallowed up because it is actually quite a fair distance from the county seat. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, there's still plenty of agricultural land um, in Zoping County um, and still a lot of farming that uh, goes on there. So, but the villages are emptying out. So maybe the overall picture of uh, Zoping County, when I went there, you know, over the years I went there was, let's say the population went, oh, you know, maybe from 700 to 750,000. I don't have the um, figures right in front of me. So uh, the population increase wasn't huge, but the population that were living in the villages versus the population that were living uh, in the county seat um, and maybe one or two of other the townships, uh, that ratio changed dr dramatically. So it used to be perhaps that, you know, 90% of the population of the county lived in villages. And now it would probably be only like, you know, maybe 30 or 40% of the population is actually living in the villages. So the villages, in a sense, are becoming less populated uh, as the county seat uh, becomes more populated. Um, but the, the place where I did my original field work is still definitely a village surrounded by agricultural land. It did not have its uh, land taken up. Um, and then, yeah, in yeah. terms of the broader, the broader lessons or the broader sort of applicability of, of, of the recombination. Uh, sure. Frame. I mean, I think the idea of recombination can be used for any social transformation anywhere. Um, uh, and, and, you know, it's just, it's sort of a, it's not a very, I think it's a very basic idea, but a very important one, right? Is, you know, how to steer this middle path between not acknowledging social transformation at all and, you know, saying that one thing replaced another. Perhaps the only place where it would not be applicable is where you literally get uh, one place, one, one thing replacing another. So if you have, um, I don't know, for some reason, the population of, a, of an area is entirely uh, forced to move out or in, chooses to move out or is entirely annihilated because of some disastrous war or something like that. And then you have entirely new people coming in uh, that might be understood more as a type of replacement mm -hmm. uh, rather than a transformation. But any any sort of social change where you have, you know, some of the original people still there. And even though, of course, you'll also have some people moving in from the outside. But to me, that's that that has to be understood. In, a, in, in the lens of recombination then um, Great. And, and not just simply as, as either a plain replacement or um, you know as, as, as oh it's plain continuity rather it has to be understood as a recombinant transformation. Oh, I think that's absolutely right, and, and that, that argument uh, comes out very strongly throughout. Um, but in any case, uh, Andrew, we've taken up a great deal of your of your of your morning here, and we're pretty much out of time. So perhaps uh, before we wrap up, I'll just ask you what what it is you're working on now, and and uh, whether you're continuing with uh, doping focused work, or do you have what what new projects are there uh, on the go? 
Uh, yeah, well, I'm sort of continuing with the idea of urbanization, but I've finally moved out of Zoping. So uh, <laughs> now I'm focusing my uh, research on larger cities in China, and I'm really looking at the funerary industry and business. So I'm looking at cemeteries and at crematoriums and at the uh, state-run funeral parlors and then all the small businesses that get involved with funerary work. And I see this as part of urbanization because, you know, when I was doing my first field work in a village, there was no funerary industry. So funerals were always organized by sort of elder villagers or, you know, they would also be family members who knew how to organize a funeral. And there was usually somebody in each of the major families that you would turn to uh, if you needed to organize a funeral and they would know exactly what to do. Uh, people were buried on village land, so you didn't have to buy a cemetery plot. Uh, the ritual was uh, entirely organized by family members. And so it was just a very organic thing. Um, but when you get to cities, um, it can no longer be done in that way, right? There's no land if, if you have to buy a cemetery plot if you want to bury uh, the ashes of, of your deceased loved one. Um, and there's usually no family member there who knows how to run a funeral. Um, and you have to deal with all these sort of larger um, organizations, uh, the bureaucracies uh, of the government that are in charge of the cremation and the state-run funeral homes, and then the large businesses that run the cemeteries. Um, and so it's entirely new industry. And uh, or I shouldn't say an entirely new industry, but it's an industry that grows along with urbanization. So as China has urbanized at basically the same rate as it has urbanized, you have the same rate of the rise of the funerary industry in all these different aspects um, that I see uh, in, in China. And so then when you, uh, you know, there's a economic dimension to this industry. There's a political dimension because memorialization in China is necessarily, you know, about remembering the past and this is necessarily political. Um, there's a, uh, obviously an aspect of kinship change because this is, you know, the funerals are a very important moment uh, in, 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 in family life. Um, and so it's a, it's a lens under the transformation of kinship. So I see, see sort of the funerary industry as uh, a real lens onto the type of changes that China is undergoing uh, as it urbanizes. And basically, I'm focusing on very large cities uh, when I do this research. Mm. Great. Well, that sounds uh, yeah, absolutely brilliant and, and, and a fascinating index, as you say, of the transformation. Um, and there's something, I suppose, quite poetic there, too, in the, in the, in the fact that your, uh, your your trajectory has also moved uh, from village to city uh, over, over, over the last uh, few decades. Um, yes. Andrew, I just want to say thank you very much for being on the show today. Uh, it was uh, It's a wonderful book, and it was uh, great talking to you. Thank you very much, Ed. And listeners, thank you very much for listening uh, to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. See you next time.